0: Hello, Jonathan Grimes here, and a quick word to say that the introduction to this episode of Amplify that you're about to hear was recorded just before the announcement by RTE of its plan to address its financial crisis. This plan does not include the closure of RTE Lyric FM, but the closure of its studios in Limerick with production moving to Cork and Dublin. So, here's the episode, thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Amplify. On this week's podcast, we feature a conversation with composer Jürgen Simpson, and we mark John Kinsella's Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Concert Hall Dublin, which takes place later this month. You're listening to the opening of John Kinsella's Sixth Symphony, as recorded on the RTE Lyric FM label by the RTE National Symphony Orchestra and conductor Prontius O'Din. I'm Jonathan Grimes and I'm joined by CMC director Yvonne Ferguson. Hi, Yvonne. Hello, Jonathan. So the main focus of this week's podcast is a new music and its relationship to broadcasting. And we're going to hear a conversation I had with composer Jürgen Simpson, which was recorded last month. This discussion was partly in response to speculation over the long term future of RTE Lyric FM, Ireland's national music and arts channel, in a report on RTE's primetime news programme back in September. The news came as quite a shock, didn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Johnson. There was real shock uh, at this speculation around Lyric's long-term future. And, you know, Lyric has a loyal listenership built up over the last 20 years. And I remember the start-up of Lyric very clearly back in 1999 because I was part of the original team of producers in what was then a real state-of-the-art studio in uh, Cornmarket Square in Limerick. And, you know, Lyric's become an an integral and embedded part of the arts and music community in the country. It's, in my opinion, a necessary infrastructure in Ireland's creative and cultural landscape. And especially with the support that it gives to classical music and the classical music community. Um, CMC's enjoyed fruitful relations with Lyric throughout the 20 years. And, you know, I've been mindful that... Unintended consequences of any changes in a resource like Larry could really have a significant impact on developing a living contemporary music sector in Ireland.
0: So let's hear from Jürgen Simpson in more detail about some of these issues. In our conversation, we talked about this report on RTE primetime, the historical links between contemporary music and broadcasting. And we also touched on the role of a radio station such as Lyric in the digital age. Jürgen is a composer and educator based in DMARC, the Digital Media and Arts Research Centre in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Limerick. And this is where our conversation took place. I began by asking him about the background to the report and some of the issues faced by RTE, the state broadcaster, in relation to music broadcasting.
2: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the state broadcaster has been struggling for many years. They have managed to find a way of staving off a lot of the more dramatic changes that are now being proposed or certainly being earmarked as being potentially grave changes that are on the horizon. Um, What the primetime documentary did, which I think was very interesting, was it... It uh, it it talked about the current situation that RTE faces. In fact, engaged also with the very nature of RTE programming. I think in a in a very productive way by bringing a number of young, twenty uh, somethings into a situation whereby they watched some of the outputs of RTE over the last number of years and asked them to sort of comment on their own relationship to RTE as uh, as a channel for their entertainment or as a channel for their news, and then used that as a stepping stone to sort of analyze you know what might be done what might be potential changes that could be productive for rte the thing that i think struck people as being really um jarring though was that the only concrete piece of information that that was suggested as being a a, a dramatic change was considering how viable lyric fm which is ireland's radio station dedicated to classical music and the arts and how viable that would be going forward which is I think uh, given that that was the only solution uh, proposed uh, was quite uh, jarring for a lot of people
0: simply because Lyric FM is, by all accounts, very good value for money. Just uh, looking at some of the facts here, that it's the lowest cost per transmission hour of all the media channels across RTE and it has an annual budget of 6.6 million. That This is from the 2018 accounts. And uh, in terms of listenership, it has 6% of the population listens to the station. I think that must be the most recent uh, listener figures. So the budget is is quite small, isn't it? And it's half the budget of Radio Nageltic, which would be its nearest neighbor in terms of a specialist uh, radio station. Yeah, if you look at the... Uh the cost of its top 10 earners i mean it's a, it's
2: about half of the combined salary of just those top 10 earners according to you know rte's own published figures um so you know there are definitely questions about sort of you know to what degree does a station that uh, has for 20 years provided a really i think valuable alternative to the noise of the the mainstream news and also the the kind of the incessant barrage that perhaps is experienced in so many of the popular music channels that Lyric offers an alternative that has been you know welcomed by certainly welcomed by certain parts of society certain people uh, have been drawn towards that somewhat calmer place to be on our radio stations and I think uh, if uh, what this program uh, suggests is true, any significant change or reduction to Lyric in its role Is is, uh, controversial to say the least.
0: So Lyric was founded in 1999, and in fact, as you mentioned, it celebrated its 20th anniversary back in May. How would you describe the station when it comes to programming and support of new music?
2: Well, I think on a broader level, it's it's important to maybe talk about what Lyric FM actually is, yeah. um, and, and you know, that, that sheds some light, I think, or that allows, I think, a doorway to be opened into just understanding I guess the dramatic difference between the kinds of music that one will find on Lyric FM for the most part and how different the intent uh, of that kind of programming is uh, when compared to the creative focus that contemporary music finds itself uh, engaging with. And I, and I have to add contemporary culture as well because I think we have to, throughout this, uh, remember that you know, Lyric FM, it's not necessarily just a classic music station. And I think that the people involved there have been also keen to repeatedly say that the classical aspect of the programming is one aspect of its programming, that it is also a place for cultural activities uh, and for cultural discourse to take place. Whether that latter aspect is as fully utilised as uh, it might uh, is certainly worth uh, engaging in and discussing in, 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 at length in fact um, but I do think it's important to recognise that ultimately uh, you know Lyric comes out of a particular 1990s tranche of uh, new radio stations I think Classic FM is the one that people often find themselves comparing Lyric FM most to uh, certainly in the sort of Anglophone world here is is part of a tranche of 1990s initiatives that that really changed the landscape of what radio could be and, wh- and how it could fit into society and uh, this is of course prior to the possibilities of listening that we have nowadays it was at a time when people didn't have streaming it was a time when people didn't have access to internet, radio um, it was really for many people one of the few escapes from the noise of the other channels in, and when Classic FM was introduced in 1992 it was a you know it was a huge success and uh, with a, within a decade 1999 Lyric FM was founded and there were many relationships that one could see between the two so I think I think it's worth noting that you know classic FM is is quite distinct uh, as a starting point because it's not part of a state broadcaster it's a private initiative and as a result the things that propel the the classic FM model is ultimately advertising the kind of things that one needs to do if if money and uh, income from advertising are, are your raison d'etre are very very different from the kinds of things that one can do as a state broadcaster and you know anybody who listens to classic FM in the UK will Realise that you know their mantra, for example, is if you don't like what's playing right now, then stay with us for a few minutes, and we're sure you'll like the next piece. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that is not necessarily what lyric was ever about. I think lyric, you know, really didn't fall into that trap uh, to, to the same degree at all. I think, and, and in fact, e- even in the early days, there was a real sense that there was a, a, a quality to it that was really keen on introducing you to uh to new things.
0: Yeah, I remember the start of Lyric as indeed I'm sure many people of a certain age do and I also remember the the beginnings of Classic FM in in 1992. I was actually in London at the time when it was when it was uh, uh launched. I think I remember listening on the first program. Um and Lyric was Significantly different in that there was a lot of uh, outlets for uh, for Irish composers and for new music as well. I mean, it had a, a new music program, Horizons, which was—I don't know if it was launched at the very start, but but certainly from the, from the early beginnings. Uh, so the thing about lyric, or the important thing about lyric over the over these twenty years, is that it has always been an important outlet for new works for new music through the broadcast and if you take something like that away how do composers or how do musicians get their music out there of course there is the digital space and i know we'll come on Mm. to to talk about that uh, shortly Mm. the other thing about lyric that it has done is it has established a label uh, a record label um, and that has released many albums of Irish composers' works, uh, and that it provides a very important area uh, of support for something that has been traditionally underfunded and suffered from a lack of support. I think the, the, the
2: importance here is to recognise that as an organisation, were they to cease existence, there would be a massive vacuum. What, what it does when it does its, its thing the best is it offers the potential for a curatorial approach? It has and has made uh, a curatorial engagement with work um, the thing that makes it special. Now, I think that classical music, in fact, on radio is highly problematic. You, certainly the composers who made much of the classical music that we do here on the radio didn't make it with the intention of it being for the radio. Um, you know, invariably classical music isn't flat. It has structure, it has dimension, it has beginnings, it has ends. So there, there is always a sense of compromise uh, when one thinks about the role of uh, classical music in a radio context that perhaps doesn't work for the aficionado. It perhaps doesn't work for that person who really is passionately specialist about both their listening environment and what they listen to and who they want to listen to. They want to have control over that. Having classical music on the radio f- does something else. It, it it offers something that's not necessarily just about classical music it has a different uh, it has a different contribution and a contribution I think that that uh, you know is important and ultimately it is I guess and this is the the kind of the the key word for me it is entertaining classical music for for many people is ultimately about having something that can be uh, listened to whilst going about one's business and contemporary music uh, is something which uh, falls in a com- into a completely different category. And I think over the many years that Lyric has been in existence, it has balanced those things. It has found a way of of having a home for those activities, either through its uh, broadcast program or through the way that it manages to be involved in the activities that are happening
0: on the ground in in, in live contexts. We're going to come back to that sure. in a minute because sure. there's, there's a lot to unpack there. But I, I wanted to move to... I guess the relationship between broadcasting and new music activity, because historically there have been uh, strong connections, especially in the post-war period, between composers and radio. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Something happened in the 20th
2: century with the introduction of radio that caused a connection to occur most notably because the orchestras uh, throughout Europe and America found themselves uh, either being established by or coming into close affinity with the mainstream public broadcasters. And I guess the microphone... Uh, the capacity to uh, present sound uh, from uh, from a live concert situation to a wide audience was just a really compelling thing. You know, you don't have to be in Carnegie Hall. You can listen to Carnegie Hall from your home. And I think for a lot of people, this was an extraordinary experience. And of course, much of the recorded music back in the early days of recording was classical music. That was still one of the, the, the major outputs, one of the major focuses. And the other thing that that's interesting as well, around the 1940s, 1950s and the post-war years, is that radio itself was still, in many ways, the dominant medium, the dominant modality for entertainment, for broadcast. So in the early 1950s, there was a real sense that radio needed to invest. Invest into recording, invest into uh, the studios, and invest also into the technologies of uh, sound production and manipulation. And so in the 1950s, you have this incredible experience throughout Europe and America where you have all of these radio stations investing hugely in experimental music because they see experimental music as being a forum and a playground for sound uh, creation. And you've got the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which uh, ends up lending a hand into sort of the most remarkable sound stories and radio plays, Doctor Who being a fantastic example. These extraordinary experiments in, in sound occur, but it's all within the remit of the radio stations. And I guess the, the, probably the most famous ones of all are, of course, the, the, the two uh, major initiatives in Radio France uh, and in Germany, in the Westdeutsche Rundfunk, West German Radio, which uh, both invested in their two respective and hugely influential experimental uh, uh, studios. And I guess the picture I'm kind of painting here is, is one in which in the 1950s, radio and contemporary music were suddenly interlinked. And it was it happened. I think it happened really over a period of a number of decades where the state investment and the, the support for the experimental arts and the contemporary arts was suddenly and intrinsically linked. <laughs>
0: if you compare and contrast the situation today, radio I think we can safely say it's not the dominant medium nowadays. Could it be that that experimentation is now happening digitally and that's the medium, it's sort of transferred into that dominant medium of today? The transfer has definitely happened. I think the way to look at this though is to recognise
2: that by having an intrinsic relationship between radio and contemporary music occurring in the 1950s. And that kind of going onwards, you've got the establishment of major orchestras who have a significant contemporary music remit. The, the orchestras in, in Germany in particular, where I think you've got a significant amount of them emerging out of state support that invariably has some connection to the broadcast centres. Um, the result of that connection creates an inherent relationship. So almost kind of a legitimising of that kind of music that is exploratory, that is experimental, that seeks to expand upon, you know, the, the, the contemporary possibilities of working with sound, working with structure. And that when that gets removed, when you move, say, for example, to purely commercial endeavors and you look at, say, Classic FM as a radio station, there is no initiative there. There is no requirement there on behalf of those other stations to be in any way involved in the development of music because their remit is quite different. And so the thing that has happened, I think, over the past 10 years in particular with so many new channels of listening and of experiencing is that many of these channels do not come with the inherent support of state funding. Its challenge for new music is that it ultimately binds a value of such experimental sound practices with the inherent support mechanisms that are there.
0: And when you remove those, you break something. I want to come back to one of the points that you made about the model, the classical uh, music radio station mm-hmm. model, which which was sort of led by Classic FM. And that is this notion of music as entertainment mm-hmm. and how this provides uh, a challenge for for contemporary music. Could you maybe c- expand on that? Yeah, I think the question of
2: entertainment is, it's a valuable term to use to investigate the the way that uh, state broadcasters and other broadcasters engage with people. Because ultimately, um, it is important to recognise that ultimately for many people, for probably most people in fact... Are various different media channels, whether that be television, whether it be film, whether it be radio, it is ultimately for many, many people about finding a way of perhaps distracting themselves from whatever tasks that they don't want to do and, and that they have to do in the working day or whether it 's driving to work for for many people uh, you know radio provides a possibility of escape, and classical radio stations offer this in some ways better than anyone else, and you see it in the you see it in the commentary, you see it in even the taglines. I mean, I think Lyric FM, I'm not sure whether they still use it, but they did have for a while, they had, you know, where life sounds better. I mean, in a way, if that's the tagline of the radio station, it points to a, a very clear uh, purpose, you know, I mean, where life sounds better, yes. It, you know, maybe life does feel better when you listen to the radio. Um but, you know, as you and I both well know, I mean, one of the significant things of the, the past hundred and uh, let's say 130 years, 120 years uh, in in music and in culture and in the arts has been ultimately a move away from the notion of what entertainment is or indeed arts purpose as being entertainment. Um, and uh, I think it's, you know, some people would, would balk at this idea that, you know, all music should be entertaining in some way. But, I mean, there are very, very different notions of what is entertaining, what should be entertaining. Life sounds better is, you know, just one way of dealing with the notion of entertainment. Um, and, you know, gripping experiences are sometimes about not being better, sometimes about finding experiences that are challenging and uh it's amazing to, to, to find how many people respond in, in, in that way. And so perhaps there is a, a, a slightly, I don't want to say limited, but there there definitely sometimes feels like broadcasters, not just these broadcasters that we have here in Ireland, but broadcasters generally have a tendency towards being a little bit safer because ultimately they do have to appeal to a broad range of audiences. They're not communicating to one individual. They're not being chosen by the individual at that particular point in time. They're switching their radio on and they're hearing something. They're not going to, you know, want to listen to, you know, contemporary uh, electronic um, uh, Japanese noise. They're going to need something at that particular point that's quite different. So this notion of entertainment is, still though i think at the core of the problem of programming in this particular context
0: isn't this a a challenge of of traditional broadcasting and and we we'll, we'll move on to talk about the digital context which is the, which is the big the, the, the big area and i suppose one of the, the the main thing that's driving a lot of this is this uh initial discussion into cost saving in rte in that a whole demographic of people are not listening or engaging with traditional broadcast media. They're deriving their entertainment from other sources. There is this challenge if you're a broadcaster that you're trying to balance what is appealing to the mainstream versus niche interests Um, and that's where i guess a lot of contemporary music falls into or the perception is that it falls into small smaller niche niche interests that mightn't be as as uh as widely taken up by the mainstream and there's always seemed to me to be a tension between those two strands but then i suppose you can look at it the other way that you can say well a radio station should be there to entertain of course but it should also be there to lead and to provide new listening experiences, some of which are entertaining, but uh, some of which are challenging as well. Mm. If we could get away with that in the past, we certainly
2: can't get away with it now. And I think this is the crisis. This is the point where we've come to a moment, perhaps, where a certain degree of uh, sort of a reflection on what the role of our broadcasters, not just Lyric FM, but I think in fact, you know, across the other channels, what is in fact the relevance of having any such form of broadband uh, um, entertainment in a world where a very large majority of our population has access to channels of experiencing all sorts of forms of music, they have access to this via the internet. They really, really don't need to have radio. Uh, And that's not just classical music, that's they just really don't need radio. And I think uh, you could actually argue that they probably don't need television either. There are too many new options for us Uh, here in Ireland, not to now need to turn around and rethink what the role is and ultimately ask, what is the specificity? What is the particular thing that these radio stations and Lyric FM in particular can do that internet radio stations will not do for us and it's ultimately about connecting us in some way with who we are in Ireland and what's happening here and you know in, in that context contemporary music actually seems to play an even more important role to add to the specificity but it you know that needs a curatorial function and, and it, it needs a, a, a probably a significant investment in terms of recognising those kind of changes that you know propel uh, the programming of a radio station away from a particular ageing population and towards a population that actually might wish to now embrace it uh, with an understanding that it offers something to them. point I should make here right now is neither you and I are experts in the field of radio and programming and had to deal with the significant challenges involved in making those kind of decisions. Ultimately, any conversations and any interviews that I've read on this topic in, in the last number of weeks have all been talking about what does one do to get bigger audiences or what does one do to balance uh, the various issues and how do you connect with this and how do you do that? I think that all of the interviews I've read have pointed to, you know, an underlying struggle on every front to, to, to balance that act. Why isn't Lyric's ultimate cultural remit not being utilised more? Why are we not allowing Lyric to be more than just, or, or more significantly involved in the shaping of our wider audiences? personally I've listened to radio all my life and in fact I was introduced, I lived for three years in Germany uh, uh, when I went and lived with my mother for, from the age of 15 to 18 and during those three years I was exposed to probably the most formative music experiences of my life at that point. So I had a, I always had a really strong sense that, that that the formative experiences that can be given to young people can actually happen through the radio but it has to be a patient radio, it has to be a radio that is not just about finding a way of having advertising space here there and everywhere and this is i think one of the big things that lyric could potentially offer it could be a more patient place that doesn't need to at all times um you know have that kind of sense of well don't worry about you know this thing we're going to make sure that you're okay uh, if shortly you will hear something that will be bring you back to the kind of work that you're expecting Um, And I think partially that happens through maybe a little bit more adventurous programming at times that are more throughout the day, but also maybe even programming, you know, plays, maybe programming documentary features that help educate listeners. Um, And I would love to see more of that happening uh, in that particular uh, space.
0: down on the train I reread a very good piece by Toner Quinn in the Journal of Music from September and his central thing is that it it, lyric doesn't need more cuts; it needs a new vision.
2: Uh, yeah, I read that article too. A lot of the discussion has uh, around RTE and its relationship to contemporary music is not just about lyric, and it's important to say that you know that that RTE it also plays a huge role in support of contemporary music through commissions, through its festivals, through its events that it takes place. But a lot of the discussion has been you know focusing on how perhaps that's in recent years been diminished. And I think that was one of the points that, that Toner was making. And really, this comes back down to the, the notion of, you know, to what degree do we have the, uh, the people in the room who have perhaps the capacity to, to educate um, the listener, educate um, audiences and actually introduce, and I think this is the important thing, new audiences, younger audiences into the value of experiences that are not safe, you know experiences that are that are uh, compelling, but perhaps dangerous. And experiences of contemporary music as being something that is vital uh, to to their to their experience of the world around them. That it's something that's ongoing. That it's not something fringe. And perhaps one of the challenges that a classically uh, oriented uh, music program has in that regard is that there is a whiff of uh, the thing that comes with classical music itself, which is it has a tendency not to be that uh, embracive of young audiences. I uh, Teach uh, many students uh, coming out of lsert and i can you know I can tell you that pretty pretty much every single student has a relationship to the so called uh, uh, classical arts and and classical music that is not a positive relationship that it 's a relationship they don't that they don 't see themselves part of um, but yet they are very interested in contemporary music what 's challenging for them is that the environment that the situation that the that the context of classical music tends to overshadow the potential and the vibrancy of a lot of the new music that appears there, and so they f- they shut it out. Now, a lot of the programmers on Lyric FM over the years have really managed to find a balance and have, you know, been, uh, you know, excellent in actually embracing new audiences, in presenting works that do not come or emerge out of the classical music tradition, but emerge from completely other parts of the the, the globe. In fact, when you do that, you do find people tuning in because they realise that there is something new, something surprising for them. And that is ultimately what a particular branch of our younger listenership needs. They need to be surprised. They need to be in a situation where, no, it's not life sounds better, it's life is more interesting or life is more exciting or did you hear that before? And that the challenge is that takes resources, that takes time. And as you just said, you know, it's, it's really, really important to, to, to recognize how important Lyric FM is for us here in this country. Roger Doyle had this lovely anecdote about yogurt uh, uh, manufacturers um, realizing that they'll sell more yogurt if they put more sugar in it, and so they keep putting more sugar in it and they keep selling more yogurt but at a certain point you know you can't put any more sugar in because it just stops being yogurt and in a way it's you know we have to recognize that you know it is important to 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 almost go go back to to natural 100 percent you know yogurt and, and say we, we don't want to have a programming that is consistently about nice, consistently about creating a, uh, a friendly place. We, we need to be adventurous. Jurgen Simpson, thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. It's been great.
1: Music from Roger Doyle, Orange Moonlamp, from his latest album, The Electrification of Night. And for a list of all the music heard in this week's episode, check out the show notes for this podcast on our website, cmc.ie forward slash amplify. Thanks to Jurgen Simpson and to DMARC, and we hope to feature Jurgen again on the podcast in the future. Now, it seems appropriate that in a podcast about new music and broadcasting that we should also feature John Kinsella. He'll be awarded with a lifetime achievement at the end of this month and that will all take place on the occasion of the premiere of his 11th symphony. And Orti have commissioned many of these symphonies, Jonathan, over the years. And uh, this lifetime achievement really does celebrate his significant contribution to contemporary music in Ireland. And uh, I was listening back to an interview that you did with him, Jonathan, a few years back and he was talking about the radio being so significant in his life and really opening up a huge canon of classical music to him. And uh, it was a lovely quote from where he said uh, he lived in a reasonably small house growing up at the radio occupied a full corner and that this was his magic corner.
0: Yeah, that's right, uh, Yvonne. I, I recorded that interview back in 2015 and it was originally done for a radio series that was broadcast on RTE Lyric FM called Cross Currents. Uh, We made that series with Athena Media. The series involved me interviewing, I think, about 12 Irish composers. And John was the first composer that I happened to interview. And I spoke to him in his home in South Dublin about his life and about his work. And at the very end of the interview, I asked him to show me some of these pocket scores you know the small little uh-huh. scores yes. that he had collected as a as a teenager um and uh, he had kept them uh, all those years so he was so he talks about those and i also asked him to show me his his studio where he actually works where he does all his composing and and for me that's that's a, a very interesting thing to to actually see where a composer does all his or her creative uh, work. What's interesting about this clip is at the time he was working on his 11th symphony and there's also some interesting insights into the Sibelius connection. So he talks about some correspondence that he had had with the Sibelius Society uh, into these fragments that were uh, produced by Sibelius into allegedly his, his 8th symphony. Let's have a listen to the clip now.
3: A score of Bram's first symphony um and for for a period i made notes uh, i'd obviously heard that on the radio 22nd of april 49 radio air and orchestra uh another performance later that year carlo Zecchi. Twenty-second of September, nineteen fifty, Otto mazarat and uh, we bought a new radio the day before, so obviously that was a big thing. Albert van Ralton, nine three five one, eleven nine fifty three, Vienna Philharmonic, picked that up on the radio from the Edinburgh Festival. So I used to make notes. These were the scores that my my father bought for me. You know, uh. quite a few uh, uh. of the main symphonic works, and this this is the book. Um, 16 symphonies by bernard shore who was a great viola player in the bbc bbc symphony and he he had no fingers on his right hand you know and yet he 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 was the leader of the section um and um that's the uh, the 8th of april 49 so i was 17 that day daddy mammy and thomas with best love and congratulations on your 17th birthday (laughs) so I, i was obviously into the scene then you know to give me that as a birthday present This is my uh, My workplace um, the piano and the desk I've had that for 30 40 years It's traveled with me from one house to another and actually the, the actual building uh, it was put up the the fee I got for my Seventh Symphony. It's fully insulated, and you can work in any weather. You know, that's the what I'm working on. I I, I custom make my uh, uh, manuscript paper, so that uh, when I decide on the orchestration, I, I make a, 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 a template, if you like, and and get those. So the the benefit of Using just one side is that I can whip them over and I, I can play the work in my mind you know so I can whiz them over and you can do a real-time uh, read of a work so you you get the feel of the rhythm and you begin to feel where things are going wrong and you need more to, to revise and that because I, I love to be able to retain a, a rhythmic flow through everything no matter how slow it is so you can do that by see see the way they're turned up, constant rereading and that. So that that's um well that has to be revised. You were never um tempted to switch over to computer. No. No. Even though I could use it quite easily. But pencil and a rubber and a pair. Couldn't be simpler. And a you piano. You can change your thoughts just by doing that. Instead of having to fiddle with something, you know. But um yeah, so this is all pretty basic. What I'm doing here at the moment is, um, y- you may know of the uh, the last eight symphony of of Sibelius, and this chap here, uh, he's head of the Sibelius Library in Helsinki, Timo Virtanen, and he's done a, a big article which you can get on the on the internet about all the bits of sketches and things that uh, Sibelius left behind, but none of them. Actually, be identified as a sketch for the Eighth Symphony, even though they're close. And um, you got so. what I, I'm basing this work on some of the shapes of the rhythmic figures uh, that I found throughout his article, you know. And it's some of Sibelius' own writing there. So it's couldn't be further from trying to be a reconstruction of what Sibelius might have done. That is not the idea. But the themes are shaped in a way because of my familiarity with those little things you know so it's something that would happen or wouldn't happen without the notion of the other work having been at least thought of you know so it's a connection so it's it's almost the, uh, an ultimate homage for you a homage yeah it's a homage I wrote to him and said would it, would it be necessary to get uh, permission from his family for doing such a thing you know and uh he said, well, what, what exactly are you doing? Well, I said, I'm just approaching it as somebody like uh, touching the garment of a prophet and getting inspiration from that. I said, no more than that. Oh, but he said, go ahead, yeah, that's okay. So uh, he knows I'm at it. Yeah. And he said, if it turns out well, um, he thinks he knows somebody who might play it up there. So that would be the summit of my life if that happened.
2: For your work to be performed
3: in, in Finland. Finland and to have even a threadbare connection with the great man. <laughs>
1: uh,
3: and this is my, uh, you know, such a template, metronome, the famous one, Miles, you know, in Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, mm. the inventor of the metronome. I I time the piece every so often, you know, to see where I'm going. It's very difficult to keep the whole... Stravinsky used to put maps up on the wall, you know, and, and follow his maps so you could see uh, the particular or the large very easily, you know. But my only way of doing that is a quick read through, you know, and then you identify things you want to work on and then you, you can spend as long as you like doing this bar or that bar, you know.
0: John Kinsella and John's 11th Symphony will be performed by the RTE National Symphony Orchestra on the 29th of November at the National Concert Hall, Dublin. That's all for this episode of Amplify. Do send us your feedback and comments on social media at CMC Ireland on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Our email is amplify at cmc.ie. Thanks again to Jürgen Simpson, to Keith Fennell for production support and recording and to Athena Media for the clip on John Kinsella. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening.